You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. How useful is a dead body? Not at all. There it is. If you have that kind of faith, it's dead. But when there's spirit in the body, when there's breath in the body, when there's life in the body, then it works and it accomplishes great things. Beloved, you've been given faith by God. You've been given faith by God. Don't think small. Why did God give you that faith? You shouldn't be thinking about faith like, but you don't know all of my limitations. Your limitations don't matter to God. It's easy to look at yourself and think you don't have what it takes to accomplish what the Lord is calling you to do. But in today's message, Pastor Tom will encourage you to not let your limitations hinder you from that calling. When you're filled with the Spirit, you're able to accomplish more than you could ever think or imagine. So don't think small. Allow your faith to rest in the one who is able to do what is mighty. For in the name of Christ, your faith can do incredible things. Now here's Pastor Tom in the book of James chapter 2 as he continues his message, Is Your Faith Dead or Living? Some people say, well, I have works and I have faith. Let's put them together. That'll make me better. No. Any truly good deeds that anybody does have to come because they already have faith in Jesus Christ. Any actions that the Pope calls for or that any other religious leader for that matter calls for to be moral, to do right things, if you did them, they'd be dead works, not works of faith. And God's not pleased with that. The only thing God is pleased with are those who trust him and from that trust then act on that faith. That's what pleases God because he wants you to be loyal to him and trust him and know him. And if you do that and understand him and then you work, that work is an offering to him and he loves it. The rest of it is just for show, for man's pomp, for his pride, for his own credit, and God hates all human boasting. And that's where religions are that are religions of works. So this is not synergism where man cooperates with God, a little bit of my work, a little bit of God's work. That's not what he means. This is a faith that's active and produces works. That's how faith and works go together. Faith energizes works. People who do good works before faith aren't really doing good works. Not as God counts them. Faith in God's Bible promises must come first. I wonder if you have faith in the Bible. You have faith in the promises of God. You may have faith that God exists, but do you have faith in the promises of God? That's saving faith. A living faith energizes good works so that living faith and good works are inseparable. Remember we said that faith always produces love. Wherever there's really faith, there's going to be love that follows. We say it this way, faith is the root and love is the fruit. Oh, you guys are good. You're better than me. Love does not produce faith. Faith produces love. Because love is a work. And that's why God's kind of love, again, I have to say, not the worldly tolerance, we're all evil, let's all like one another's evil and get along and, and, and help one another to do our evil. That's not love. But God's kind of love tells you whether or not a person is truly saved or not. Now, James has more to teach us about the relationship of faith and works. Look at the last part of the second half of verse 22. And it says, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. In what sense do works perfect faith? This is interesting. 
Well, it does not mean that the works prove that Abraham's faith was perfect. Abraham had strong faith. Abraham was a great example of faith. That doesn't mean he had perfect faith, and that's not what this is saying. The word perfected here, teleao, has caused some misunderstanding. I really like the ESV's translation. It says, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Perfected is also a word that can be translated matured or completed or brought to its intended goal. There's a mission or task, and it completes that mission or that task. Don't think of perfection in the sense of absolutely no mistakes, 100% perfect and pure. No, it has to do with there's a goal, and the thing has been brought to its intended goal now. Faith, in other words, comes to its goal, its fruition in works. There's a close grammatical parallel uh, to James here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, which says this. I'll read it for you. If we love one another... God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Our love does not complete God's love or perfect God's love. God's love is already perfect. What it means, rather, is that God's love comes to expression or reaches its goal when we respond to one another in love. We have love for one another. So get the connection. True faith produces real works. What are those works like? Love and obedience towards God. Those works of obedience complete the faith. They bring faith where faith was supposed to be brought. Faith is not supposed to be this, I believe in God and just be there stale and inactive. Faith is supposed to have a goal. Why do you have faith? Why did God give you faith? What's the intended goal? Where is it leading? And the answer, it's supposed to lead itself into works. And that's why if you don't see the works, there's no faith. And that when the works finally come, those works, particularly when you're at the end of a man's life or end of a woman's life, and they're practicing fully these works of faith, you look at them and say, that person's faith has now been measured out and worked out and has now been completed in the works. That's what he's saying. That's what he's writing. The goal of faith in God's promises is not to say, I have faith in God's promises. The goal of faith in God's promises is to obey God. That's why God gave you faith, so that you would be busy obeying, so that that faith would be energized. You'd find the things that God wants you to do. You'd find the works that he wants you to do, and you wouldn't sit on your hands. You wouldn't sit on your religion, but you'd be active with that, you see, looking for how God wants to use you, how, how that faith is supposed to change your thinking and change your actions, and it leads to something. The reason why God gave faith to Abraham in the first place is so that he would obey him fully, and he tested him whether he would obey him fully by taking him up that mountain and saying, sacrifice your son, and he did. Only at that point did faith reach its intended goal. And there's more. Look at verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Same thing Paul quoted. Same exact verse. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, one of the most important verses in all the Bible. This event, Genesis 15, 6, where it says Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, that event happened some 30 years prior to the offering of Isaac. So we're going to rewind in Abraham's life a little bit and look at this. That pronouncement happened right after Abraham had gone off the battle in Genesis chapter 14 and had rescued his nephew Lot. You remember that story? 
and brings him back to the land. He has all the spoil from the battle and everything like He's probably tired, goes into his tents. God gives him a vision, takes him outside, and shows him all the stars. Now, for all you city dwellers, I want you to know that there's actually a lot more stars up there than you've seen when you come out. You count maybe eight or nine or something like that from all the city light. You've ever been out in the country, you realize there are a lot of stars out there. Amen, country people? Amen? Okay. You know that you can't count all the stars up there. So this is a real challenge. He says, can you count all the stars? And basically, you know, no, he can't. Well, that's how your descendants are going to be. And when Abraham is looking at the stars, it's interesting, as he's staring at the stars, hearing God's promise and looking at the stars, it says Abraham believed God. And right smack at that moment, God credited the faith to him as the righteousness he needed to stand before God. Looking at the stars, it's amazing. God immediately justified him. What does that mean? God immediately counted his faith in the promise of God as a righteous standing before God. God accepted Abraham's trust in his promise and imputed righteousness to Abraham. You say, where did he get the righteousness from? Well, Abraham didn't know it at this time, but the righteousness was going to come from Jesus' son. And that's way in the future, but God can do that. God can take a sacrifice that's going to be way in the future because he's omnipresent and he's omniscient and he's eternal and many other attributes I can't remember right now. And because he's that way, God can do whatever he wants. He's sovereign. And so the sacrifice can go forward to us even though it was made way in the past and it can also go backwards towards Abraham. Abraham's 2,000 years before Jesus. We're 2,000 years after Jesus. The same sacrifice, the same righteousness, the same person imputed to anyone who believes whether before or after, right? Long before the offering of Isaac, long before he received the sign of circumcision, long before he did any of that, He stood righteous before God by faith alone. And Paul picks up on that, Romans 4, for we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? Here's Paul doing a little exposition. While he was circumcised or uncircumcised. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Why is that important? Because the circumcision becomes then the sign that he has later. It has nothing to do with a ritual sign that you have to do. People say, well, I'll be saved when I'm baptized today. Baptism is a sign. Baptism is just a symbol. Baptism doesn't save anybody. Baptism gets you wet. So Abraham's faith, apart from works, before works, the law of Moses hadn't even been given. Circumcision wasn't given. He was already credited as righteousness. That's just fact. See, it's not just Paul. Please see this. It's James also here that insists that Abraham's status before God was sealed by faith before any works. By the way, i got to throw this in. It is not that faith itself is so virtuous, that faith is so virtuous that if you have faith, you don't need to do any good works because your faith is so virtuous you could just use your faith and God will look at that and say, that's even better than the works. It's amazing how people mess that up too. Now, why does salvation have to be by faith? Because faith is really nothing. Faith is a beggar's hand saying, I've got nothing, could you help me? That's all faith is. Faith is an outward help. It's not like, I have faith, I have faith. All you have is works, but I have faith. I'm going to give that to God. God's going to be impressed with me. That's not the point either. Faith is outward directed. 
we say salvation has to be by faith alone. Why? Because it has to be by Christ alone. And the only way we get Christ to be the Savior is if you're trusting Him and not you. So it's by faith alone because it's by Christ alone. Those two have to go together. And then we'll add in also, then it's by grace alone. When you have faith, that means you're putting it in someone else to rescue you, not yourself. Anybody who says, I think I'm a pretty good person, their faith is in themselves. That's not the faith of the Bible. The faith of the Bible makes you very humble. You got to get down and crawl under the gate that leads to life. You say, I don't want to, but you have to. That's the way it's going to be. Until you break your pride, you'll never have saving faith, and God will never reveal himself to you. You have to crush your pride to become saved and righteous in God's sight. You got to beg somebody with a righteous standing before God who's willing to pay your penalty, your eternal penalty. You got to beg someone like that to save you, or you're not going to be rescued. And by the way, there's only one person like that, and it's not Mary, it's Jesus. Mary knew that Jesus was her Savior too. God was her Savior, the true Mary. In other words, faith, true faith, saving faith is a surrender. So when God imputes righteousness to you, when you believe, that righteousness really is extranos. It's outside of you. You don't have any yourself. It's alien righteousness. Someone else's bank account being credited to yours, that is a great deal. Okay. So the offering of Isaac did not credit Abraham with righteousness. The offering of Isaac did what? The offering of Isaac fulfilled Abraham's faith. The offering of Isaac did not save Abraham. The offering of Isaac showed the end goal of Abraham's saving faith. Even here, the word fulfilled can be a little bit misleading you have in your translations there because when you think of fulfilled, you think there's a prediction and then time passes and then it gets fulfilled. It happens, right? That's not what he's talking about here. God is not making a prophetic prediction that one day Abraham would grow up and be a very righteous man. The Greek word for fulfilled here is plerao and it means to fill up or to bring the fullness out. In other words, Abraham's faith was filled up by works or if you'd like it this way, it was filled out by works. The works gave expression to his faith. That offering of Isaac was the goal of Abraham coming to faith in the first place. It filled it out. We would not have known the reality of his faith without his works, and his greatest work was offering Isaac. Now, notice, very importantly, how faith resulted in obedience, and that obedience was towards God. It says, and he was called the friend of God. Let me tell you something. Nobody gets called the friend of God who's disobedient to God. Jesus in John 15 said to his disciples, Judas was gone by then. There was 11 left. He said, you are my friends if, what do you think he said after that? You do what I command you. You don't get to be a friend of God without obeying God. And he did that. And God considered Abraham his friend. Isn't that beautiful? Why? Because he had a living faith. How do you know he had a living faith? Because he had obedience. Abraham was loyal to God. If there's one indispensable quality in a friendship, it's what? Loyalty. How terrible we consider it treacherous when someone claims to be your friend and then in, and when you're in trouble in time of need, they turn on you and they prove disloyal to you. That's not a friend. How do you know someone's a friend? Because they stand with you through the thick and the thin. Where people feign friendship, it's just treachery. But God had such an intimate and trust relationship with Abraham. He says, he is my friend. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 7 reads, 
Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of the land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? And then Isaiah 41.8, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend. What a title. As I said, the Muslims love that title for Abraham. They still call him Abraham, the friend of God. And so do Christians and Jews. Abraham's gravesite is in Hebron. I actually got to go there. And on one side, there's this synagogue, and they're doing their synagogue thing and studying the law and bobbing their head and all that. And then on the other side is the Muslim side. And no, there's no, there's no way to get in between. You've got to walk all the way around. And the guns were out there, and the whole place was being guarded. And for some stupid reason, I had shorts on that day. And you can't go into a Muslim holy place with shorts on. So I took Sue's uh, little wrap, and I wrapped myself with a skirt just so I could get into place. I said, I don't care. This is Abraham's birthplace. I'm going in. I'm not going to be cut out of this. So I was in there looking like an idiot, but trying to study it all and look at it. And I'll never forget that place. And it really is the place that they believe is, is an accurate place, uh, that there is a grave down below there. 4,000 years ago, both he and Sarah and I think Isaac and Rebecca are buried there as well. Then we come last to verse 24, his conclusion. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. You have to understand how he's using the word justified and how he's using the word works here and how he's using the word faith. Because when Paul says you're saved by faith, he's talking about a living faith. When James talks about faith alone here, he's talking about a dead faith. When Paul talks about justified, he's talking about being justified before God in his sight. When James talks about justification, he's talking about being shown to be or declared to be a man of faith before men and before God. When Paul talks about works, he's talking about works that human beings do to have their merit before God. When James talks about works, he's talking about works of a living faith. So this is James' main point in the passage. This is what he wants us all to understand. Amen, any man, not just Abraham, broaden out to all of us. Amen is justified. He's shown to be a true believer and to be accepted by God by his works of faith is the point. Again, I say justified by works does not mean the opposite of what Paul wrote. By faith alone to James means a faith that has no works with it, in other words, a dead faith. Faith which is true is always followed by works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 brings together faith and works. Listen to this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves... It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one will boast. Now this part, verse 10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Why was I granted faith? To walk in good works. Was I saved by the good works? No, but I was saved unto doing good works. Now, the second illustration, unfortunately, we have to do quickly here, and that's Rahab in verse 25. Rahab's faith, verse 25, is a living faith also. And it says, in the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. You remember the story. Joshua's about to conquer the land. She lives in Jericho. Her house is in the wall. She has heard of how 
this God of the Israelites, some foreign God to her, a God that her people did not worship, had dried up the Red Sea and the people had come out of Egypt and the people of Israel, though they were a bunch of slaves, had been delivered from the most powerful nation and the most powerful king in the world. She'd heard these stories. She heard about how powerful this God was and while they were in the wilderness, she heard more of what God did by killing other kings and their kingdoms out in the wilderness as they wandered there and now they'd come all the way around the other side of the Dead Sea and they were in the plains of Moab and they were about to come across and, and she knew all of this and she somehow finds out that the spies are there in Jericho. She's a harlot. She lets them into her home, gives them cover, hides them in a place she probably had to hide other gentlemen before, concocts a plan in order to save their lives and begs them that when they come into the land, because she knows their God is going to win, that they would save her life and the life of her household. And this is what James is referring to. Was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works, that is, works of faith, when she received those messengers, hid them, she actually lied, and I don't think Scripture is endorsing that side of it, but she lied in, in her plan and sent her own king and the other people in the wrong direction, protected those spies, told them how to get back to Joshua in order to be safe, and they brought the word back, and when they brought that word back to Joshua, it was very encouraging because Rahab had said that the heart of the people in the land is melting before your great people. And Joshua needed to hear that because Moses was dead and he needed that encouragement. And so they arrived, not like the first spies, the first time they gave the bad report, remember that, at Kadesh Barnea, and they said, oh man, there's giants in the land. Oh man, we can't conquer this. Oh man, it's terrible. There was only Joshua and Caleb that believed they could do it. Now these spies come back and they say, the hearts of all the people have melted before us, Joshua. We surely can rise up and take the land. And it was those encouraging words from Rahab that helped. And here was a woman of faith. What a contrast. Why out of all the people in the Old Testament did James choose Abraham and Rahab? Because they're in some ways totally different. Man, woman, old, younger, very rich, at the lowest rungs of society, a harlot, very influential, not influential at all, very well-known, not well-known at all, completely different. And yet, they're both saved by grace, and they both demonstrated their faith by works. It's the same for everybody is the point. If you're rich and famous, it's got to be that way. If you're poor and destitute, engaged in immoral lifestyle, it's the same way. There's no difference. You say, but I have a bad background. You don't know the things I did. Well, Rahab was a harlot. Okay? And God justified her by faith, which was demonstrated in her works. And, of course, that's exactly what happened. Her life was spared and her family was spared. And Rahab got to live in believing Israel. And she grew up there. She was transformed by the grace of God. She married a man named Salmon and became the protogenitor of Boaz, who married Ruth, from whom came David. And according to Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, Rahab is a descendant of the Lord Jesus Christ, or was in his genealogy, I mean. By a saving faith, Rahab energized works, and God honored her in a great way. And then verse 26, which is the conclusion of the conclusion, the very end. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Picture the dead body. That's what James wants you to do. No spirit in it, no breath in it, it's gone. What does a dead body do? Nothing. How useful is a dead body? Not at all. There it is. If you have that kind of faith, it's dead. But when there's spirit in the body, when there's breath in the body, when there's life in the body, then it works and it accomplishes great things. Beloved, 
You've been given faith by God. You've been given faith by God. Don't think small. Why did God give you that faith? You shouldn't be thinking about faith like, but you don't know all of my limitations. Your limitations don't matter to God. If I had a longer time, which I don't, I would remind you of Moses, which I'll briefly do. <laughs> I, don't, don't, I don't, don't speak well, Lord. D -d don't send me to talk to Pharaoh. I'll be with your mouth. No, 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 send Aaron. I said I'd be with your mouth. Oh, no, no, please don't. God got angry at him. Sometimes we say, but I have a low self-esteem. You're doubting God. It's not about you. It's about the God you put your faith in and what he can do. Well, he can't do anything through me. You're not being humble. You're being unbelieving. And that's why God got angry at Moses. And you've been given faith so your faith will work. Think big. And God will work great works through you. In today's message with Pastor Tom, you learn the difference between works of faith and dead works. You were reminded that works done out of self for your own glory are dead works, but works done in faith bring glory to God. For active faith produces works that help build God's kingdom. Today's message was all about letting active faith lead the way. And with active faith, God can do incredible things through you. I am so glad you joined me today to dig deeper into God's Word. Before we share what's coming up next time, I'd like to give you the opportunity to join us in sharing the gospel message here at Discover Hope. Would you prayerfully consider becoming a financial partner of this ministry? We're a listener-supported radio program, and all gifts are very appreciated. You can get all the information and donate online by visiting hopebible.org radio. That's hopebible.org radio. Next time on Discover Hope, Pastor Tom will teach on controlling the tongue and guarding what you say. You'll learn about the power of words and how they can either build up or tear down. As a believer, you're called to build one another up just as Christ built up the church. Next time, Pastor Tom will emphasize the destruction that takes place in your soul when you use words to hurt rather than to love. There's much more to learn from the book of James, so we hope you'll tune in next time. If you'd like to listen again to today's teaching or share it with friends and family, you'll find it online at hopebible.org. Thanks for joining us on Discover Hope.